continue in our series in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Um, this morning's title of the message is The Last Thing You Saw on the Screen, Whatever It Takes. And before we get into the message and the passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to come week after week to pause and to thank you for your goodness and for your grace, for your faithfulness for opportunities, for circumstances that we can glorify you. God, I pray this morning is not just another Sunday morning that we chose to come to church, but it's a morning where we intentionally come to receive from you and you receive from us. So God, I thank you for all the people that are here this morning. Thank you for those watching online. I pray this morning that they would hear and respond to you. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember last week, we looked at Jesus and his encounter with the leper. And this leper, if you remember... Lepers in that day and age were considered outcasts. They were considered unclean. They suffered from a life of uh, being exiled and put out into um, uh, kind of outside the area. They were rejected. They were disliked. And so you can imagine that everything they touched was defiled. And Jesus is coming through, and this leper comes to Jesus. And he makes this request and says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There was an amount of humility, and there was also a great amount of boldness. And so Jesus encounters this leper, and he says immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed because Jesus was moved with compassion, and he said, I am willing. Last week we finished up chapter 2. It was a great scene with Jesus, and now this morning we start chapter, uh, sorry, we finished up chapter 1, and now this morning we start chapter 2, and we see Jesus encounter with four friends and a paralytic in a crowded room. I'm convinced there is within each of us this attitude of whatever it takes, because we're drawn to movies and books and stories, and documentaries about things where people have to display whatever it takes. I'm not sure if you've seen it. The documentary came out. I mentioned this a few months ago, but it's a documentary called The Rescue. It's on Disney Plus, if you have that. And it's about the story of the soccer team in Thailand who go into this cave with their coach to celebrate their birthday, and it was during the season when all the rains come and they get trapped. Miles was inside this cave. And this documentary is about the rescue, the determination, this attitude of whatever it takes to get those boys and that coach out. It's a fantastic documentary if you've got some time to see it. But I've seen that same whatever it takes in some of you in regards to things like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to lose these five pounds. <laughs> Ten pounds. Twenty pounds. I'm going to do whatever it takes with my job with this deal, with that sale. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make ends meet. I've seen it also, this whatever it takes mentality, when it comes to making sure your children are cared for. That when they're sick, you're going to do whatever it takes. When they're hurting, 
when your spouse is hurting, to do whatever it takes. And then I've also seen sort of this whatever-it-takes mentality to keep my image up, to make sure you like me, to make sure you accept me. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And most of us can relate to this attitude, whatever it takes, when we really think about it. But sometimes we struggle with that whatever-it-takes attitude when it comes to the things of God. When it comes to His kingdom. And that's the backdrop of the story this morning in Mark chapter 2. Now I want you to, to put yourself in this scene. I've asked you week after week to do it, but this is, this is a morning you've got to be there. So find a seat on the floor, at the table, beside some friends. Maybe get somewhere you don't nobody, nobody knows you, or you can get in the windowsill. But make sure you're in this room, and lean in and pay attention to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read the first two verses, and then we'll pause. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Say this, when he, capital H, Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered there so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Jesus, the scripture says, was in Mark chapter 1, verse 39, was going into the synagogues, and now he has returned home in chapter 2. Now this word home can be kind of hard to understand. Because we also read in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus didn't have a home. He said, foxes have homes, but I have no home and lay, lay my head. So what is he talking about? Well, many scholars believe that Capernaum was considered his home, his hometown. It could have been Peter's home. It could have been a home that, that somebody let him have that, to use. So this idea is that Jesus is back in a familiar place, in a familiar territory. He is home. Now, in Capernaum, I've showed you before, this is Nazareth, down here at the bottom left of the screen, this is Nazareth, and the Capernaum is this red line all the way up to this corner, it's on the north, uh, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And it's significant that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was, lived, his hometown was Nazareth, but then he was rejected from Nazareth and he went to Capernaum. Capernaum was not only just a city where Jesus did ministry, Capernaum was also a city that was a, a port. And what do we know about port cities? Well, port cities all the time have travelers coming through. So what was rejected in Nazareth, Jesus got to be in Capernaum, but it was really a strategic ministry place because all these travelers would come through to Capernaum, they would hear and see Jesus, and then guess where they went? All over the world with what they've seen and experienced of Jesus. And as people came through all over the world, they learned about Jesus, and then they were sent out. The location and potential of Capernaum was significant. But I want to make this very clear. The location and potential is never enough. People had to believe. In fact, although Capernaum was Jesus' hometown, it was the site of many proofs of his identity, many sites of the miracles... The people refused to believe Jesus. And Jesus included Capernaum in a rebuke. Listen to Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethesda. For if the miracles that were performed 
in you have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. So although Jesus is at home and he's sharing and miracles are happening, the people there experienced it, but they didn't believe. And one scholar said this, In some ways, the city of Capernaum represents many who have been exposed to the gospel. Hear the truth, see the good and wonderful things God is doing, and they may enjoy going to church, singing the songs, and consider themselves Christians by association. Now, I want to be clear about something this morning about Jesus' home in Capernaum. Familiarity and enjoyment of Jesus does not equate to salvation and the life with the Spirit. The people of Capernaum, particularly those of the religious leaders, had seen everything Jesus had been doing in these miracles, and yet they refused to believe. And we can speculate why. Maybe their believing would cost them too much. It would disrupt their comfortable lifestyle. Maybe it would uh, pull them away from the control that they thought they had. But to sum it up, John chapter 12, verse 43 says this, For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so Jesus is back home at Capernaum speaking about this. Familiarity and enjoyment of Jesus doesn't equate to the salvation and life filled with the Spirit. Through the rest of the book, you will see Mark describe crowds and crowds that follow Jesus. Mobs of people. So many people that they won't have time to eat in certain scenarios. And that's what's happening in this scenario. This mob mentality. The people were flooded in Capernaum and they were flooded into this house. Now Jesus is home, he's preaching, he's fulfilling what God called him to do. Verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? To say, the, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up immediately and picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Four things I want to pick apart from this passage this morning. And the first one is this. The four friends of character. Verse 3 says this. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. These guys had a certain characteristic about them. And the first thing we see is this. Is that they were friends of faith. These guys were confident that Jesus could do something for their friend. 
Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. These guys, if you will, had a conviction of hope. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, at first glance, you think, Matthew, of course they had faith. Let's just move on. It doesn't seem that significant. But Christian faith is the essence of Christian living. Hebrews 11, just listen for a second. We just sang about the heroes of heaven. Let Let me just read part of this. Hebrews 11, through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And all through, from verse 4 all the way down to verse 32, it says, By faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Moses, Israel, all these people, all because of faith. And this is what it says, By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, verse 34 of chapter 11, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped by death the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at. Their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. And others were killed by the sword. Some went out about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Verse 38 and 39. They were too good for this world, wandering over the deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Faith is a big deal to God. And these friends had faith in Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Where would you be without faith? Is your life marked by faith? I wish there was a way to see what a life, what my life could look like if faith was removed. Would it look any different? If you were able to take faith out of your life, would it really look any different? Faith in Jesus. One author said this, Without faith we would be left with only facts and flesh, and that is not a good combination to bank on. These guys had faith in Jesus. Along with their faith, they had determination. Determination is the persistence to see things through. Just some trivia facts. Did you know that Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team? And that Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper because he lacked imagination? And did you know the Beatles were rejected by a recording company because the company didn't like their sound and they thought they didn't have a future in the business? And one of the most prominent displays of determination today is the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky. I'm not trying to stir a political pot, but I just want to read a quote. In light of the war, in light of the invasion, he says this, I am here. We are not putting down arms. We will be defending our country because our weapon is truth. And our truth is that this is our land, our country, our children, and we will defend all this. I don't need a ride. I need ammo. There is a resolve. There is a determination. There is a whatever-it-takes attitude. That's what these four friends had. 
they could have taken the easy road. They could have looked and said, man, you know, it's hot out today. There's a lot of people. I, I'm good. I think he's, he'll be fine. When I look at the resolve of the secular world even, and I look at the resolve of these guys, and I ask myself, Lord, where's my determination for the things of you? Because I look around, even in my own life, I look around and the church as a whole, and I think, how easily do we give up? Think about those people you really want to see come to Jesus. Where's your determination with them? How many of you have been there, you get in this situation, you say, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I'll go serve you in Africa. <laughs> There's a determination at that point. But what happens? We get out of the situation, we forget all about God and Africa. How determined are we in reading God's word to study it, to show thyself approved? Think about the excuses we can make in serving and giving and sharing the gospel and getting involved in a life group, a Bible study. Parents and grandparents, think about your family lives and how easily distracted we can get when we just want to sit down and talk to them about their spiritual lives and the kids and what God's doing in them, how distracted we can get. Spiritually speaking, how determined are we to fight the good fight? to finish the course, to forget what lies ahead and strain with all that's in me. Have we become spiritually soft or is there still within us a determination for the things of God? In this story, these friends had determination. These friends also had conviction. Desire and determination can get you so far, but it's the conviction inside that sees us through. And notice that conviction is personal. Each guy had a corner of the mat. They had to make a decision. Their conviction led them to be decisive and not waver on this thought or that thought. Now, I don't know about you, but I can be very indecisive. I can be indecisive about what I want to eat or where we want to go or what we want to do. It drives my family Nuts. But conviction leads me to be decisive when it comes to the things of the Lord. In fact, a lot of the decisions are already made when we're convicted. It's just the choice of whether we're going to follow in obedience. Authors Gary Friesen and Robin Maxson in their book, Decision Making in the Will of God, said this. The minds of healthy Christians are settled on the things that matter and humbly teachable on the things that don't. They continue to study to show themselves approved unto God, 2 Timothy 2.15, so that they form godly convictions about even the gray areas of life. They are careful not to judge others who serve God differently, but they are decisive about God's plan for their own lives. When we live in ways that are true to those convictions, we will not be shaken by every new idea or cultural whim indecisiveness about what God has declared to be true has no place in the Christian life. These guys had faith. They had determination. And there was a conviction about this is what God has called me to do and I'm going to do it. That's what makes up this whatever it takes attitude. And it, it begs the question, how's my whatever it takes attitude with the Lord? What's strongest? What's weakest? Where does the Lord need to really 
prune and work? Is it faith, determination, conviction? Let's look at what this whatever-it-takes attitude led the four friends to do. Verse 4 says this, Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. These friends had faith in action. James says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Now, I want to get further into these guys' minds. Just, just, just go with me just for a second. Can you imagine this conversation that they had at whoever's house they were thinking up this plan? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? And what if you walked in on them making this plan? What would have been your response? What? You guys are they're crazy. This is never going to work. Or are you going to be like, yeah, and then go here, and then go there? I mean, I mean just think, we're going to do this, and we're going to get some rope, and we're going to get some shovels or whatever, and... It sounds crazy, but here's the truth. A whatever-it-takes attitude forces us to get creative. Because the obstacles aren't going to stop us. And these, these four guys got creative. They started thinking of a plan, getting ropes together, getting tools to cut the roof. But there's another person in this story that I, I wonder what they were thinking, and it's the paralytic. <laughs> they may be going, guys... Hang on a second. We're going to do what? You're going to take me where? Was he trying to figure out what they were doing? Was he part of the plan? Was it a secret? They just picked him up? Was he grateful? Was he scared? Was he nervous? Excited? Was he thinking about the plan? Was he thinking about Jesus? What is Jesus going to say to me? I just wish I could have been there to hear this plan develop. And so these four friends, filled with faith and determination and conviction, they each grab a corner of the stretcher, ropes and tools in tow, and off they went. Most of the houses that day in Jesus' time uh, had stairs around the backside so you could get up on the roof. So most likely, uh, these guys went up to the roof on the back, and the, and the roofs were made with straw and thatch and mud. And during the, the heat of the day, uh, these roofs would get really hard, keep out rain and weather. And they all four climb up out to the roof, and they begin cutting, probably hammering, Getting through this roof. Now put yourself inside the, the room. Hearing this banging. Looking up and then looking at Jesus. And then looking up and looking at Jesus. Did Jesus stop teaching? Did someone try to stop these guys? Can you imagine just you know one of the religious types saying, Guys, excuse me. What are you guys doing? What about the owner of the home? What was he thinking? I mean, just think right now, if you started to look up and you just started seeing some of the ceiling fall. And I'm just curious, how many of you have been more concerned about the mess that they were making and the dirt? From where you're sitting, 
look up and see the hole come through. And four sweaty guys looking in. Hearing them say, easy, don't, don't drop him, there's Jesus, we're almost there. This was all faith in action. They were doing something about what they believed. Paul Harvey said it like this, if you're not living what you believe, then you really don't believe it. And for those of you under 35, go home and Google who Paul Harvey is. <laughs> Verse 5 says this, Jesus seeing their faith. James 2, 17 and 18, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. These friends had action to their faith. An attitude of whatever it takes. A list of obstacles did not overshadow their purpose and their obedience to have faith in action. And so what was Jesus' response? I think this is one of the greatest scenes in Jesus' life. What could he possibly be thinking? In some ways, I like to think that Jesus has sort of this smile and this look at these four guys, and there's a sense of pride and proud of their decision and action and obedience. It seems from Mark, the tone and the characteristic of Peter, that we get a glimpse into this, this look from Jesus like, well done, guys. Well done. Jesus looks up and sees these sweaty guys, dirty and maybe bloody hands, eyes wide open with hope and anticipation, all breathing heavy, and a sense of relief and accomplishment on their faces. And I just want to ask, does he ever see you that way sometimes? Marred by the fight. Pressing, determined. Maybe these four friends were high-fiving each other up on the roof and chest-bumping. I don't know. Certainly appropriate. Maybe some in the house were cheering. Maybe some looked like disgust. I can't believe they interrupted this service that I was here. What's your response? I don't know all the responses, but eventually I do know this. All eyes were on Jesus. The paralytic, four guys, owner of the home, all those in the room. What was Jesus going to do? What was he going to say? How was he going to say it? How did he look at him? Was he going to be, were they going to be rewarded with a high five from Jesus, or were they going to be rebuked? There had to be this overwhelming, pregnant pause in the room. And the Bible says this, after Jesus seeing their faith, Jesus says, now before I read verse 5, what do you think Jesus, the most normal thing Jesus would have said? You're healed, stand up, stretch up your legs. But he says something much bigger. The end of verse 5, and Jesus seeing their faith said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, to be perfectly fair to this paralytic, I don't think the paralytic came to have his sins forgiven. I think he came and trusted his friends so that he could walk again. 
I mean, can you imagine the guys on the roof? What, what did he say? I don't know. Something about sins. Sins? Yeah, sins. What does sins have to do with it? Can he see that the guy can't walk? It seems strange to have Jesus say something to us that is different than what we want to hear. But whenever we see Jesus and Jesus sees us, we always get more than we ask for. Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do far and above abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Jesus, too, can do whatever it takes. Jesus, knowing the thoughts of the scribes and Pharisees that were there, and we'll look at it a little bit later, he asked them a great question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? At first, it's, it's a question that Jesus kind of looks at these guys, and maybe he's trying to trap them. But I think a little dig deeper into the question, I think Jesus is asking them something for them to search their own hearts and to give them an insight into what he's about to do. Either string of words rolls off Jesus' mouth the same. Your sins are forgiven, pick up your palate and walk. It's just as easy for us. We can say either phrase. To heal people meant Jesus spoke, and his power and his words alone healed people. That's how he did creation. He spoke, and the world came into existence. In fact, Jesus speaking, get, get up, pick up your palate and walk, requires nothing of Jesus other than his power and his word. He speaks, and it is done. However, for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven meant sacrifice, even to the point of death on a cross. So he asked the question, which is easier for me to say? It was Jesus' way of putting his whatever it takes. So Jesus responds again in verses 10 and 11. But to say, so, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your pallet and walk. And what are the people's response? There's always a response to Jesus. You cannot come face to face with the person and work of Jesus and there be no response. Your lack of response or your no response is a response. And there are four responses I want to look at real quick. The first one is for the paralytic. He says, your sins are forgiven. He gets up immediately and runs out the room in the sight of everyone. And Luke's account of this, in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, he says, the man took his bed and went home thanking God. This guy went home thanking God for what Jesus had just done in his life. Can you imagine the story he has to tell? As believers, we have a story to tell too. A story of thanksgiving of what Jesus has done in our lives. What about the effect it had on the friends? Well, the passage doesn't uh, specifically say what their response was, but we can surely speculate. Their faith, their faith had been seen by Jesus. Think about that. Their faith had been seen by Jesus. Can you think of another any other greater thought than to Jesus look at me and see my faith. To see your faith. 
Jesus was proud of them. He responded because of their faith. He's thankful for their obedience, for their determination, for their conviction. When was the last time Jesus saw your faith? You know, many times I think God gets a bad rap in this because a lot of times we look at God and we think God's looking at us going, oh man, I'm so disappointed. You could have done better. There you go, blowing it again. But there are times, there are moments in our lives as believers where he looks at us and goes, well done. I see your faith. I see your determination. When's the last time you saw Jesus look at you and say, well done? Well done. What about the scribes? Verses 6 and 7 say, But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In Mark chapter 1, we saw Jesus where he was presented as the Messiah. In chapter 2, it's the first confrontation where the scribes and the Pharisees uh, have a conflict with that idea of Jesus being the Messiah. And then from there on out, Mark gives uh, back-to-back scenarios of Jesus having conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes. They're looking around at this crowd that's following Jesus. They're going, these crowds should be following me. There was a threat. They start thinking, who does this guy think he is? He's disrupting my life. He's causing me to think different. He's messing up with my control, forcing me to think about what is true and real versus what is empty, challenging me to wrestle with who I really believe God to be and who I really believe I am. That's why I think it's interesting, verse 8, and convicting, where he says, Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? And the truth is this. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he knows our inner thoughts too. He knows how we're reasoning in our response to him. So what is your response to Jesus today? The question I have to ask, simple question, is do I have, do you and I have a whatever-it-takes attitude with Christ? Only you and Jesus can answer that. Is your life marked by faith, determination, and personal conviction in the things of the Lord? Are there areas where you know you've grown soft? Will your attitude result in action, and if so, how? Are you and I, as believers, willing to do whatever it takes to bring our family and friends to Jesus? Whatever it takes in regards to prayer and Bible study, accountability, giving, service, outreach, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring glory to God. May God give us clarity and decisiveness to press on and do what He has called us to do. Remember, familiarity and enjoyment of the things of Jesus does not equate to salvation and a life filled of faith. There's only one response not recorded in this story, and it's yours. Who are you in the story? The paralytic who needs healing and forgiveness and restoration? To respond to the work of Jesus? Are you the friends ready to commit? This morning, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes with 
for the power of God in me to do whatever it takes. Maybe you're like the scribes and Pharisees, threatened by the power of Jesus and the control that you don't want to give up. This morning, I want to encourage you to respond to the person and work of Jesus. This morning, as you can tell, we're going to partake of communion. Think about what we've already talked about. Jesus invites us to come. We don't have to cut a hole in the roof. We don't have to be lowered down by friends. He invites us to come and to remember what his sacrifice was in order for him to say to you and I, your sins are forgiven. Uh, this morning we continue in the book of Mark. We're looking at the second chapter this morning. Uh, the title of the message is Whatever It Takes. But before we go to the Lord, uh, before the scripture, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity you give us just to pause and to be present in your presence. God, I pray this morning that as we open your word, that our hearts open, that our minds open, and that we are ready to receive all that you want us to receive. And to not just uh, have information pour into us, but there will be a transformation that plagues and that place in that we respond. So God, would you help us this morning? Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you that they would hear from the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you remember, if you were here, you, uh, we talked about Jesus and his encounter uh, with the leper. And this leper who had been declared unclean, who had been ostracized, who had been put outside the camp, came to Jesus and asked this question, If you are willing, you can make me clean. He had suffered from a life of rejection and dislike, and he comes to approaches Jesus and then, he comes with this great amount of humility, also coupled with boldness to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus responds to the leper, because he was moved with compassion, the scripture said, he says immediately, you will be healed. And immediately the leprosy left the man and he was cleansed. Great scene with Jesus at the end of chapter 1. And now we go to Mark chapter 2 and we see another wonderful, awesome scene. It's Jesus with a paralytic and four friends in a crowded room. The title of the message is Whatever It Takes. And I'm convinced that there is within us this characteristic, this attitude of whatever it takes. And the reason I know that exists in us is because we were drawn to those kind of movies. And we're drawn to those kind of books, those kind of documentaries, those kind of stories. We're drawn to those things. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet. I mentioned it a few months ago about this, the rescue. It's on Disney Plus now about uh, the boys and the coach, the soccer team. They get trapped in Thailand into the caves, and it's the end of the four-month monsoon season, and the waters flood in, and they're two miles in the cave. And there's this great documentary of the rescue of these boys. And you see in the story the whatever-it-takes attitude to get these guys out, these kids and this man out. But I've seen this whatever-it-takes attitude in some of you. This whatever-it-takes attitude to lose those five pounds. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes 
to land this deal, to make this sale. I'm going to do whatever it takes in my job. Whatever it takes to make ends meet. I've also seen this, this whatever it takes attitude come out whenever you want to care for your kids. Or when they're sick, as parents, you want to do whatever it takes to comfort them and to help them. I've seen it in spouses. I'm going to do whatever it takes to love and serve. I've seen this whatever it takes attitude, this mentality, in people protecting their image, being accepted. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you like me and that you think this way of me. I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect that. So I know that there is within us this whatever it takes attitude in certain situations and in certain places. And my question this morning is, sometimes it seems that we struggle with a whatever it takes attitude whenever it comes to the things of God. Well, that's the backdrop of the passage this morning. In Mark chapter 2, four friends have a whatever it takes attitude in getting their friends to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read the first two verses and pause for a second, and then we'll pick up the rest of the story. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say this. When he had come, he, capital H, Jesus, had come to Capernaum several days afterwards. It was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Now remember in Mark chapter 1, the end of the chapter in verse 39, it shows that Jesus was going around to the synagogues, and then he would no longer go to the synagogue. So he was now coming back home, it says. But this word home is a little, uh, a little confusing because later on in the Gospels, it also says that Jesus doesn't have a home. And he says, foxes have homes, but I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head. So what is he talking about? Home. Well, this idea of home is not necessarily uh, uh, an actual home. It could be. But it's also talking about his hometown of ministry. He came back home, a neighborhood. Some think it, some think it could have been Peter's home. Some people could have been a home that, that they let Jesus use during his ministry. Uh, remember that Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem. And I'm going to circle it right there. There it is. How, that was pretty good, wasn't it? So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And then he traveled up to Capernaum. Capernaum's on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Capernaum was his home base for ministry. So verse 1 says that Jesus had returned home. Now, the interesting thing about Capernaum is this. Capernaum was also a port city, which meant this, that a lot of travelers, a lot of merchants would come through Capernaum and do business and dealings. And as they were in Capernaum, they would get to hear Jesus and see Jesus and experience miracles. And not only did they get to see it, it was a strategic place because once they heard it and, and saw it, guess what they got to do? They got to go all over the world and tell about what they have just seen and heard of Jesus. So Capernaum was strategic. The location and potential of Capernaum was significant. But the location and potential is never enough. People had to believe, and people in Capernaum, the people of his hometown, didn't believe. 
In fact, Jesus included Capernaum in a rebuke to several cities. Listen to this from Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! For if the miracles were performed and you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. One scholar said this, In some ways, the city of Capernaum represents many who have been exposed to the gospel, hear the truth, see the good and wonderful things God is doing, and may enjoy going to church, singing the songs, and consider themselves Christians by association. So I want to be clear about something this morning about Jesus coming to his hometown. Familiarity and enjoyment with Jesus does not equate to salvation and a life filled with the Spirit. The people of Capernaum got to see all these miracles, got to actually put their eyes on Jesus himself. But Capernaum, particularly the religious leaders, heard and saw what Jesus did and didn't believe. We can speculate to why. Maybe they were too busy. Maybe it was too difficult to surrender, to believe. But John 12, 43 sort of sums it up. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so think about it. Capernaum had a greater opportunity than most cities of Jesus' day to hear and believe in Christ. Luke 12, 48 says this. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. Capernaum, when Jesus came home, had been given much. They got to see and experience the miracles of Jesus. So I wanted us to get into a better place of where Jesus was coming home to. What the the scenario was, what the atmosphere was like. Many in Capernaum witnessed Jesus and his miracles. But like I said earlier, familiarity and enjoyment of Jesus does not equate to salvation and a life filled with the Spirit. Now, throughout the rest of the book of Mark, we'll see Jesus over and over and over dealing with the crowd. In fact, there'll be mobs of people. Sometimes there'll be so much of people that they won't have time to eat. We'll see that a couple times in Mark. So we're not sure 100% why the mobs are coming. Are they really coming for life change, repentance, and forgiveness, or is it something else? So we start to get a feel for some of the people's motives, even in this story. So back to the scene. Jesus is coming home. He comes to this house. He begins speaking and preaching in the house. The streets, everywhere is full. The house is full. And as I want you to do each week, I want you to get in the story. In fact, I want you to get in the house. So, so find a spot on the floor. Uh, move some stuff out of the way. Slide in. I've seen you all do it before. Get in the story. Be there. And lean in and see what Jesus says and does. Verse 3 says this. And they came, bringing bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down a pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about things, these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk, and go home. And he got up immediately and picked up the pallet and went out of sight of everyone, so that they all were amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. Four areas, four aspects that I want to pick apart this morning. The friends, the friends' action in faith. Jesus' response to the friends, and then the response of the people to Jesus. First, the four friends of character. Verse 3 says, They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. These guys had a certain character about them, and the first thing I want to look at is these, these guys were friends of faith. They were guys that were confident in what Jesus could do for their friend. They had faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Seen. In other words, they had a conviction of hope. Hebrews also says in verse 6 of chapter 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. Now I know at first glance you may say, Matthew, that's, that's nice. Just, let's move on with the story. They had faith, so they brought them. But I, wanna, I want us to think about faith for a second. Faith is the essence of the Christian life. It is trusting in Jesus and his goodness. Hebrews 11.1 1 has been known as the, the Hall of Faith chapter. We sang about it a second ago, Heroes of the Faith. And we read things like, Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. It was by faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, uh, the people of Israel, on and on and on through chapter 11. And then you get to verse 30, 33. It says, by faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. But for their faith, others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Verse 37, some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed by the sword. Some went out wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Verse 37, 38, they were too good for this world, wandering all over the deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Faith is a big deal to God. And these four friends had faith. Have you ever thought what your life would look like if faith was absent? In fact, the greater question is, would your life look any different? Is your life marked by faith? In Jesus. If we don't have faith in Jesus, then what do we put our faith in? 
One author said we would be left with only facts and the flesh, and that is not a good combination to bank on. These guys had faith. The second thing these friends had was determination. Determination is the persistence to see things through. Just some interesting facts. Did you know that Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team? And did you know that Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper because he lacked imagination? (laughs) And that the Beatles were rejected by a recording company because the company didn't like their sound and they thought they didn't have a future in the business. And one of the most prominent displays currently, one of the most prominent displays of determination today is by the Ukrainian president. And I'm not trying to be stirring a political pot, but listen to what he says. In light of the war and fight in Russia, I am here. We are not putting down arms. We will be defending our country because our weapon is truth, and our truth is that this is our land, our country, our children, and we will defend all of this. I don't need a ride. I need ammo. There is determination and resolve there. That is the determination these guys had in order to get their friend to Jesus. There's going to be obstacles. But there needs to be matched resolve and determination. You know, I look at these different people in the secular world and think about their determination for success. And then I look at these friends and their determination to bring people to Jesus. And I turn and ask myself... Where's my determination? How determined am I to see Jesus? How determined am I to bring other people to Jesus? Spiritually speaking, maybe a self-reflection with the Lord. Spiritually speaking, how easily do you and I give up? Think about those people that you really want to see come to Jesus. Where's your determination with them? Through prayer and love and grace, and determination. What about those times you got you kind of stuck, and you said, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I will go to Africa, I will go, I'll do whatever. Think about how determined we are when it comes to reading and, and studying God's Word. How determined are we? Can you think about the the excuses we can make about the service, about serving and giving and sharing the Gospels, getting involved in a life group and Bible study. Parents and grandparents, think how distracted we can get and how sidetracked we can get when we just want to talk to our kids about Jesus, how they're doing spiritually. Are we really determined to know that and to see them grow in the faith? How determined, as Scripture says, are we to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to forget what lies behind, and strain and press on ahead? Have we become spiritually soft? I said at the beginning of this series that there are two things that Mark will challenge us with. One is that there is a a culture out there that is evil and that is hard-pressed to get us to, to compromise. But the other challenge is for the church that has grown to have this apathetic faith. And these guys show that they have faith and determination. And the last characteristic of these guys is that they have conviction. Desire and want to can only take you so far. But conviction will carry you through. 
and conviction is personal. Although there were four guys in this story, each of them had to have a corner or this guy was going to fall to the ground. Now, let me just say this. I can be pretty indecisive about things. I hope somebody can agree with me on this. Like, I, I can be indecisive about where we go to lunch this afternoon. I can be indecisive about what we do for entertainment. But what I want for a birthday gift or Christmas gift, I, I just can be indecisive, and it drives my family absolutely bonkers. But conviction, conviction leads to clarity and decisiveness. Authors Gary Friesen and Robin Maxson said this in their book, Decision Making in the Will of God. They say this, The minds of healthy Christians are settled on things that matter and humbly teachable on things that don't. They, don't, they continue to study to show themselves approved unto God, 2 Timothy 2.15, so that they form godly convictions about even the gray areas of life. They are careful not to judge others who serve God differently, but they are decisive about what God's plan is for their own lives. And when we live in ways that are true to those convictions, we will not only be shaken by every new idea or cultural whim, indecisiveness about what God has declared to be true has no place in the Christian life. In other words, these guys were convicted and convinced, which gave them clarity to know what to do and to do it. They had faith, they had determination, and they had conviction. These are the ingredients to a whatever-it-takes attitude with the Lord. So as you look at your life, which area is strongest? Which area is weakest? Where does God need to intervene most? Is it faith? Is it determination? Conviction? Let's look at what this whatever-it-takes attitude led the four friends to do. Verse 4 says this. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and, they had, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. These guys had faith, determination, conviction, and now we see they also had action. That's what James talks about in James 2.14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say to have faith but don't show it by your actions? All right, now I want you to get... I go with me to the room to get further into these guys' minds. Can, can you imagine the conversation these guys are having prior to them taking this guy to Jesus? Wouldn't you like to have been there just to listen to him talk? What would you have said if you would have walked in on him? Guys, you are crazy. This is nuts. Or would you have been like, ooh, I want to do it. I want to be there. You know, there's different types of people like that. How did they come up with this plan? It was so out of the box, so original. Well, the principle is, when you have a whatever-it-takes attitude, you get creative. And these guys got creative. And they went to work, gathering rope, getting tools to cut a roof. And I can't help read this story and not think about one other person, and that's the paralytic. What is he thinking? Like, is he going, guys, time out, hang, hang on, hang on just a second. What are, you, what are we doing? Did he even know about the plan? Was it a secret? Or was he part of it? Is he grateful for this opportunity? Is he scared, nervous, anxious? Was he thinking about the plan, or was he thinking about what Jesus is going to say? 
off these four guys go to this crowded house filled with faith, filled with determination, filled with conviction, filled with ropes and tools. And they pick up each corner and they go down the alleys and find their way to the Jesus in this house. Now the houses that in Jesus' day were built with stairs up the back sideway, uh, up, up the back and go kind of sideways and then up onto the roof. And the roofs were made of thatch and uh, like branches and, and limbs and, and mud. And in the sun, the, the, the roofs would get really hard on top. So they all four, plus the paralytic, climb up onto the roof. Now the people inside, you guys, had to start hearing something. A hammering here. A cutting there. And you can just see the people in this story uh, looking up and kind of looking at Jesus. Like looking up and looking at Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Did he stop and wait? Did he keep on talking? It's not in the text, but you almost can imagine somebody going, what are y'all doing? One of the religious leaders going, we don't do that here. I mean, just think right now, if you looked up and you just started seeing some of the, the, the ceiling falling, what would you think? And I'm just curious, how many of you would be more concerned about the hole in the roof and the dirt and the dust in the room than actually what's happening? From where you're sitting in the room, can't you just look up? And you see this guy coming from the roof and you hear the guys a little lower. Look, don't drop him. A little lower. We're almost there. All of this, all of this was faith in action. They were doing something about it. These friends, and you and I can have all the faith, determination, and conviction in the strongest sense of whatever it takes, but until we put that action, attitude into action, it changes nothing. Paul Harvey said it this way, if you are living what you believe, if you're, if you're not living what you believe, then you don't really believe it. And for those of you here under 35, you can go home and Google who Paul Harvey is. <laughs> but it's a great truth. And now see what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, seeing, seeing, seeing their faith. Their faith was visible. James 2, 17, 18, Even so, if faith has no works, it is dead by being by itself. But someone may tell you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, works comes out of faith. Action. There were obstacles. There was a roof. There was a crowd. But their actions led them past the obstacles through the excuses. So what was Jesus' response? I think this is one of the greatest scenes with Jesus and miracles. What could Jesus possibly be thinking? I like to think that in some way, some real deep way, that Jesus looked up and saw these guys and there was a sense of him being proud of them. That he smiled at them. That he looks up and he sees four sweaty guys peering in with dirty hands, maybe bloody hands, breathing heavy, faces full of anticipation and hope. 
then breathing a sigh of relief that we made it. Has he ever looked at you that way? Maybe these four guys were up there giving high fives and chest bumps and like just so overexcited, and they would have been appropriately doing so. Maybe some were in the house cheering. Maybe some had this look of disgust. Can you believe that they did that? I interrupted our meeting. But you're there, right? What's your response? Have you ever thought about Jesus looking at you with this sense of thankfulness of your obedience, of your faith, of your determination, of your conviction? So what was Jesus going to do? All eyes eventually turned to Jesus. What was he going to do? What was he going to say? How was he going to say it? What were these four guys thinking? Were they going to be rewarded or were they going to be rebuked? There had to be this overwhelming pregnant pause in the room. And the Bible says this, after seeing their faith, Jesus says, now what would you think Jesus would say right here? Fix your legs, your legs are good. Stand up. You're healed. Jesus says something much deeper and much bigger. Verse 5, end of verse 5 says this, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, to be perfectly fair to this paralytic, I don't think he came and went through all of this to have his sins forgiven. I think he wanted his legs fixed. Can you imagine the guys on the roof? What did he say? I don't know, something about sins. Sins? Yeah, sins. What does that have to do anything? We, we wanted to get him healed. And Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And what may seem strange to us, we always feel like it's strange when we hear from Jesus something different than what we are anticipating. But Jesus, once again, like a few verses back with the leper, he doesn't only address the outward limitations He heals the inside need. Whenever we see Jesus and Jesus sees us, we always get more than we ask or observe. Ephesians 3.20, He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. And I love the way He responds to the Pharisees. He knows their thoughts and He asks them a great question. Verse 9, which is easier for me to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now, at first, it may seem that he's trying to trap him, and maybe he is. But I think if you think a little deeper about this question, either string of words that come out of Jesus' mouth come out the same. They come out the same. Your sins are forgiven. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. So what was Jesus asking? When Jesus healed, all it took was his word and power. It's how he created the world. It's how he created the universe. He spoke it and it was done. So saying get up, pick up your pallet and walk requires nothing really of Jesus. However, for Jesus to say 
your sins are forgiven meant sacrifice, even to the point of death on a cross. Which is easier for me to say? The question and concerns for forgiveness cost Jesus his very life. It was his way of putting his whatever-it-takes attitude on display. Jesus responds again in verses 10 and 11, but you, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. It's the climax of the story. Everything hinged on that moment leading up to it and the response from it. So what was the response? Let me just say this. You cannot come face to face with the person and work of Jesus and there be no response. Your no response or your no thank you is a response. That was certainly the case in this house. So the first response is for the paralytic. His sins were forgiven and he was healed. He got up, verse 12, and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of sight of everyone. Luke's account of this story in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, says this, that he took his bed, he went home thanking God. This guy was healed, just like the leper. That morning he couldn't walk. That afternoon he was running home. And he went home thanking God. Can you imagine the story he had for the rest of his life? Oh, I got one better than that. Let me just tell you this one. As believers, you and I both have stories to tell. Stories of thanksgiving of what Jesus has done in our lives. What about the effect it had on the friends? Now, this passage doesn't mention their response, but we can surely speculate with pretty good accuracy what they must have been feeling. Jesus, the Son of Man who had authority to forgive sins and heal, looks at them and said, I see your faith because of your faith. Can you think of a greater thought of Jesus looking at you and I and say, because of your faith? Jesus was proud of them, thankful for their obedience, for their faith. When was the last time you felt and knew Jesus was proud of you? So many times I think God gets a bad rap because we think of God, we think of Jesus, and we think God's looking at us going, oh, I'm so disappointed. You did it again? Another failure? When are you ever going to learn? And there's this, there's this overarching derogatory thing that happens when we think about God. But there are times and seasons when Jesus can look at us and say, I'm proud of you. Your faith, your determination, your conviction. Well done. Way to go. When's the last time you can celebrate that? That you can hear Jesus almost say, well done. Well done. What about these scribes? Verses 6 and 7 said, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In chapter 1, we introduce, are introduced to Jesus as the Messiah. Chapter 2 is our first conflict with the Pharisees and scribes, and they come together. And after this, Mark goes five different times back-to-back back on the conflict of the Pharisees and Jesus. And this is just the first one. 
I think it's interesting and both convicting when he says, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way and to themselves, he says, why are you reasoning that way in your hearts? Uh, the thing that gets me about this is that Jesus knows my thoughts too. And he knows the way I reason sometimes. Jesus not only knew the outward physical ailments of the paralytic, he also knew the thoughts of the scribes. He knows what you think about him. And he knows why you respond and why you don't respond to him. So let me ask a few questions about this passage. The first one is this. Do you have a whatever-it-takes attitude with Christ? A whatever-it-takes attitude with the things of God? For the glory of God. Is there faith, determination, and conviction in your life? The second question is, will that attitude result in action? If so, how? Are you and I as believers willing to do whatever it takes to bring friends and family to the feet of Jesus? Really? Ask yourself. Each of these guys had a corner because they were, had faith and determination and conviction. Do we have that? Do we believe Jesus can heal and restore our friends that don't know him? The third question is this, will your response be to commit and asking the Lord to give you his courage of whatever it takes? Remember, familiarity and enjoyment of Jesus does not equate to salvation and life filled with the Spirit. There's one response not recorded in this story, and that's your response. What is your response to Jesus? Are you the paralytic who needs healing and restoring? Are you the friends with determination that you know of people in your life that need to be brought to Jesus? Are you the Pharisee threatened by the power and control that only belongs to Jesus? This morning you can tell from the tables up front and in the back that we're going to participate in communion. And as we do, I want you to think about what we've talked about. Where you are in this story, what you've seen, what you've experienced. Jesus invites us to come and receive forgiveness of sins because of what he's done for us on the cross. To remember his death. Remember Jesus says your sins are forgiven, but it meant sacrifice for him. So we, like the paralytic in the story, could be restored. As we've done the last few times, we're going to exit from your right, enter back in from the left. Um, if you're not able to walk up here and grab one, just, just uh, hold up your hand and one of the the folks will bring some juice and bread to you. But I want you to take some time and reflect on 